Good morning. morning. Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2 this morning. Revelation chapter 2. Thank you so much, all of you, for praying for Victoria. She's doing very well. She's healing very well. Um, she's not. She's discomfort, but not a great deal of pain. And so we appreciate your prayers. We know that the Lord is using your prayers as a tool to minister on her behalf. And we uh, are convinced that some of the reason she is not in great pain and just some discomfort is because God's people are praying for her. Uh, not only our church family, but uh, we have people in churches uh, throughout the Midwest who are praying as well. So we gr- are grateful to you for what your for your prayers and thankful to the Lord for His kindness. We're reading this morning Revelation chapter two, begin reading in verse eight. This is the letter to the church in Smyrna, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. The words are the first and the last who died and came to life, our Savior. Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Here's the challenge now to all of us. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this, this encouragement, this challenge is for all of us. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Speaking of all believers who are conquerors and victors. It was February 22nd, A.D. 156, in a bustling city off the coast of the Aegean Sea. A respected pastor who had fled from the city at the entreaty of his people was tracked down to his hiding place. He was being pursued. He made no attempt to flee. Instead, he actually offered his captors food and water. As they drove him to the city, the officer in charge urged him to recant. What harm will it do to sacrifice to the emperor, he was asked, but the pastor refused. And on arrival, he was pushed, roughly pushed out of the carriage and brought before the proconsul. Have respect to your age, Swear to the genius of Caesar, demanded the proconsul. Swear and I will release you. Revile the Christ. The pastor replied, Eighty-six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Swear by the genius of Caesar, I have wild beasts unless you change your mind. Bid them be brought was the pastor's reply. As you despise the beasts, unless you change your mind, I will see to it that you are destroyed by fire. Infuriated, the Jews and Gentiles began to gather wood for the fire and assembled the spot where this man would be burned to death. As the timber was lit, the pastor prayed this prayer. 
O Lord, Almighty God, Father of of thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the knowledge of thee, I thank thee that thou hast thought me worthy, that thou hast thought me worthy this day and this hour to share the cup of thy Christ among the number of thy witnesses. And he, of course, was burned to death. The city was Smyrna, 60 years before this letter was written. And the individual was Polycarp, a disciple of the Apostle John. At that time that he was burned at the stake, he was the 12th to be martyred for the name of Christ. What would you have done if that was you? As we'll see in just a moment, all it would have taken was just the uttering of three little words. Caesar is Lord, and he would have been free. Just four syllables to freedom. And what would you have done if that had been you? Would you have uttered those words? Or would you have not compromised and gone to the flames? In Revelation 2, 1 through 7, last Sunday, we saw the most pernicious threat to our churches, uh, loveless orthodoxy. We have a church that believed right and did right, but they had lost their first love. They had a hollow love for Christ. And that is a threat to all of our churches. That is a threat to every good church. That's a threat to our church. In this passage, we see the lot of every church that faithfully serves Christ in an overtly Christ-hating world. Those are important words. An overtly Christ-hating world. We don't live in that world yet. Yet. But here we see the situation, the lot that will fall upon faithful Christians who live in such a world that is overtly, clearly, passionately against Christ. The theme of this letter is persecution. That's all that's talked about. In verse 9, Jesus speaks of the persecution that the church was facing. And in in verse 10, he speaks of the persecution that it was going to face in the future. So here's what you're facing now, and it's not going to get better. He says in verse 10, in fact, it's going to get worse. There's no promise here. There's no promise here, folks, of relief or peace or security or safety or prosperity. Our Savior promised only escalated persecution, more and worse. Before we jump into this letter, let me just mention a couple of things that you need to understand before we go further. Two things we need to grasp about the situation in Smyrna. First, the people in Smyrna were obsessed with Rome. They loved Rome. In 196 BC, Smyrna erected a temple to Adia Roma, the goddess Rome. Smyrna was the first city to do that. In A.D. 26, roughly 70 years before this letter was written, Smyrna competed with six other cities for the right to build a temple to Tiberius, the reigning emperor. So there are seven cities in this beauty pageant, seven loyal cities. Of all the cities in the empire, these are the seven that have a shot 
at building this temple to Tiberius. So of all the cities in the empire, these seven, it boils down to these seven, and which of these seven is given the privilege of building this temple to Tiberius? This church, Smyrna. I'm sorry, this city, Smyrna. Because Tiberius knew how much this city loved Rome and loved being Roman. To the citizens of this city, there was no greater sin than treason against the empire. The second thing we need to grasp is that if you're going to survive in Smyrna and other cities like Smyrna and the Roman Empire, you had to sacrifice to the emperor at least once a year. The worship of Caesar, who was the embodiment of Rome, was kind of the glue that held the Roman Empire together. How are we, how is Rome going to keep all of this vast area and all these cities, towns, and provinces, how are we going to keep them within the Roman fold? How are we going to develop and maintain loyalty? Well, here's a way. A cult of the emperor. Cult of the emperor. So, in your city, you can worship the local deities, and you can worship as many deities as you want. But you're also going to worship Caesar. And that worship of Caesar, that allegiance to Caesar, will strengthen the empire. And that's exactly what happened. So once a year, every citizen stood in line. When they got to the front of the line, every citizen got to the front of the line, took a pinch of incense, sprinkled it over a flame, and said three little words. Caesar is Lord. And then you walked to the line and you were given a certificate with your name on it, that you'd sprinkled and said the, those words. And now within the empire, you are free to do whatever you want. I mean, you, you've got privileges. Those within the empire see you as a local, I'm sorry, as a loyal Roman within this local area, within this city. So now you're going to trade and your people are going to frequent your businesses and you can easily buy food. Your kids will be treated fine because you're a loyal citizen to Rome. But what if you don't sprinkle and what if you don't say Caesar is Lord? Just the opposite happens. Without that certificate, you're branded as a traitor. You'll be mistreated by every faithful citizen of Smyrna, and at any moment, at any moment, they could scoop you up, try you, imprison you, and kill you. Any second. The, the, the sword was literally hanging over the neck of every faithful Christian every moment of every day. They never had safety or security. They could be scooped up and killed any moment. Like Polycarp, 60 years later, the members of this church were faithful. And so we see their situation, the, the lot that they faced. To this faithful church and to all of his faithful churches, Christ promises persecution. And faithfulness does not diminish persecution, it increases it. The more Christ-hating the world in which we live becomes, the more Christian-hating the world will be. To hate Christ is to hate those who follow Christ. 
Jesus just said that. It was just read to us from John 15. And so as any culture, any community, any country, including our own, becomes more Christ-hating, it will become more Christian-persecuting. And so there's a lot for us in this little letter. We're not here yet. And we've always said in the past, we're not here yet, but we're going to get there someday. Now we know we're not here yet, but the day really is coming, and it is coming swiftly. Let's pray. We'll look at this letter. Thank you, Father, for these believers who are such a model for all believers and for us. I thank you for their faithfulness. I thank you for Polycarp, his faithfulness, for the Apostle John who is writing this from the Alcatraz of his day because of his stand for the word of God. And we think of so many who've been martyred for the Christian faith. Father, please use this letter today in our lives to encourage us in our stand for Christ, to make us stronger, more faithful, to cause us to realize what the future may hold for us and for our children and our grandchildren, and to prepare for such a day as described in this letter. We love Jesus Christ. We pray that he'll be pleased by our lives. And now by this worship service and this time in the word, we ask this in his name. Amen. So we see a couple things in this text. First of all, an overtly Christ-hating world will attempt to silence faithful churches. By overtly, I simply mean clearly, strongly, uh, no holds barred, a hatred for Christ. That kind of a world will attempt to silence faithful churches. First of all, faithful churches will face tremendous hardships. They'll be crushed. Look at, look at verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty and the fact that you're being slandered. I know your tribulation. This term, tribulation, uh, speaks of pressure. It's used of, of a man being tortured to death by a boulder being rolled onto his chest. It's, it's used of other situations of pressure. It's used of uh, the calamities of war, the agonies of childbirth, which I hear is pretty challenging. Christian persecution also, this term is used. It's a broad term that speaks of every kind of pressure, every kind of tribulation. And Jesus uses this broad term so that it can indicate the multiplicity of ways. He's saying, I know the many, many, many ways that you're being pressured and crushed by this world that hates me, he says. These believers are being crushed by the weight of the ungodly, immoral, and debauched value system of this city. Good was being called evil, and evil was hailed as good. What does that sound like today? It sounds, it sounds like today. Christ knew that these blackballed Christians had difficulty buying and selling. They had difficulty finding work. People wouldn't frequent their businesses. He knew that how their children were being mistreated. He knew they had little to wear. He understood the, the many, many stresses, the many, many ways in which they were being crushed because they loved Christ. They'll be penniless. 
I know your poverty. This interesting. This, this word for poverty is not the standard normal word for poverty. It doesn't just mean lacking things. It means lacking everything. The normal word for poverty referred to someone who was poor and that he earned his, his bread by daily labor. So every day he was able to work enough to provide for his family and maybe to buy a few things. That's the normal word for poor or poverty. This is a different word. This word speaks of, of having nothing. No money, no frills, no luxuries, no extras. You know what these people had? They had the Lord. That's what they had. And by the way, they were living this kind of existence, abject poverty, not because they're irresponsible, not because they were lazy, not because they had suffered some some you know struggle that left them with nothing. No, they were they were living in abject poverty because they loved Christ and they stood for Christ. That's the reason. They weren't lazy. They were willing to work, make a living. They often weren't allowed to do that. No one would give them employment. At this point, Jesus reminds them of something. Notice this. I know you're, you're abject poverty, but you are rich. He reminds them that they're wealthy. Like Lazarus in Luke 16, who had nothing material in this life, these believers had nothing material in this life, but like Lazarus, they possess immeasurable treasures. In this life, in their relationship with Christ, immeasurable treasures and immeasurable, incalculable treasures in the next life. Jesus saw things as they actually are. Let me just remind you of this. Jesus is saying, what he's saying here is true. It doesn't sound true at first blush. You are suffering. You have nothing. You don't have a a shekel in your pocket. You have lint in your pocket. That's all you have. But you're wealthy. Now how can that be? He's telling the truth. They had nothing in their pockets. But they had immeasurable wealth. He's talking about the spiritual wealth that they have in Christ and what the future holds for them. That this world held nothing for them, but the next life holds everything. We need to view things the way Christ views views things here. He saw things as they actually are. We often see things the way the world does. We value earthly things more than eternal things. We think about life as the here and now. How nice is your house? How nice is your car? How many of them do you have? Do you have the newest phone? And whatever the things are that that you're geared toward. We think about success and happiness and all that based upon what we have in our hands. And Jesus says, I know you have nothing in your hands. I also know you're, you're just wealthy. We value earthly things more than eternal things. We hunger after material possessions more than we hunger after heavenly treasures. And because that is true, we spend our time accumulating earthly wealth. 
and not accumulating heavenly or eternal wealth. Jesus says, you know this text, Matthew 6, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. That's an option we all have in front of us. Don't bother with that. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Whatever you have on this earth, it's not going to last. It's all very temporary. Either it'll disintegrate one way or another or someone will take it from you. And indeed, once we die, someone takes it from us. You can't take it with you. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, he says. They're going to be poverty-stricken. They're going to be slandered. Verse 9. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. In the first century, five types of slander were leveled against Christians. So if you're a Christian, there are at least five ways in which you might be slandered. The first, the words, this is my body and blood used in the Lord's Supper. Many assumed this is my body and blood indicated that Christians were cannibals. Because Christians called the common meal that accompanied the Lord's Supper the love feast. Often Christians were persecuted as those who were immoral. But at that love feast, orgies were involved. Because the Christian message often divided homes, Christians were often accused of of, uh, being homewreckers. Because Christians did not worship images, they were, they were often attacked as atheists. And because Christians would not say Caesar is Lord, they were viewed as treasonous. So there are four ways, or five ways commonly that believers were attacked in the early church. And some of the greatest enemies, as we see here, are the Jews. Notice, those who say they are Jews, they're not really Jews, meaning they have not recognized their Messiah. They're of their father, the devil, as Jesus speaks of them in John 8. They're outwardly Jews, but they haven't recognized their Messiah. They're they're, they're not actual Jews. And they form a synagogue of Satan. He's the one they're ultimately behind. He is the one they're ultimately worshiping because they're not worshiping the Christ. We need to remember that early on in Christianity, uh, Christianity was viewed as a sect of Judaism. So here's Judaism and all the other religions and paganism and cults and so forth. Here's here's, uh, Judaism and here's Christianity. It was viewed as a part of Judaism. And you know who hated that more than anything? The Jews. They hated the fact that Christians were viewed as kind of like them or one of them, part of them. And so any opportunity the Jews had to attack the Christians, they would take it. And that's what's being reflected here. Faithful churches are going to face hardships. If we're faithful, the more that the world around us hates Christ, the more faithful we are, the more of this kind of treatment we're going to face. And by the way, faithful churches may never experience relief from those hardships. Most of us think, whether we admit it or not, if we serve the Lord faithfully, if we're in church when the doors are open, if we give sacrificially, if we're involved in ministry, if we're faithful to the Lord, God's kind of obligated to 
Give us a good life. None of us would say that. If it was on a test, we wouldn't check it. God's obligated because I'm doing these things. He's obligated to give me a good life. But we do kind of have that thinking sometimes. The fact is that the more faithful we are in our Christian walk, the more difficulty we may face, and the more so is the case as our world becomes hostile to Christ. As hated, as hatred for Christ grows, so will hatred for Christ's followers. We just read John 15. Let's read a, let me read a portion of that again to you. Jesus says in John 15, 18 through 20, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, if you were like everyone else, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Because I chose you to be mine, and you are now a follower of mine, and therefore your life is totally contrary to the direction, the philosophies, the ideologies of the world. That being true, the world's going to hate you. Remember the word that I said to you. In other words, when this comes along, remember that I said this. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. Don't forget this when it comes. I said this was going to happen. Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are you, blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. They're lying about you. Blessed are you when they do this on my account. Blessed are you when you face this because of me, because you love me, because you're following me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Listen to that. There's no reward here necessarily for that. You're faithful here. The reward isn't here, however. We're very much... Instant gratitude, or, 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 instant, um, what's, the, what's, the, what's the phrase? What is it? There it is. I can't come up with it. Instant, we're very, very much, I need to have you with me a lot more often when the things blank out. We're very instant gratification creatures, aren't we? I did it, now I want the reward. And utter all kinds of things against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great, not today and not tomorrow, in the next life. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. They're not, they, they, they persecuted me and those who followed me, the prophets, and now you're following me, they're persecuting you. Don't, ex, don't expect anything other than that. And as much as we might want the reward now, rest in the fact it's coming. We can wait for the next life, and then we'll be amazingly rewarded for faithfulness. These Christians were serving the Lord faithfully. They were uncompromised. They, they did what, what they should do. They, they followed the Lord. And what does Jesus promise them here in this little letter? Not relief from their persecution. Not relief from their poverty. It's going to get better no, it may not. 
not an end of the slander and gossip. He promises them more persecution, more poverty, more slander, and possibly death. This is the promise, more and worse. One author says, the prison cells of Smyrna were sanctified, made holy, sanctified by the blood, tears, and prayers of God's people. You know, most of us can't identify. It's hard for us to identify with these Christians. There are two great differences between them and us. First, America is not Smyrna. Not yet. Smyrna hated Christianity. It was a polytheistic city. There were temples of Sibyl, Zeus, Apollo, Aphrodite there. Wherever you turned, you saw the the glories of paganism. Smyrna was a city given over to every kind of debauchery. This was a city where virtue was disdained and vice was embraced. Does that sound familiar? It was a city that blindly followed its government, Rome, and blindly followed Rome's values and policies. Does that sound familiar? America's not Smyrna. Not yet. The second thing in which we're different, American Christianity is different, is that American Christians are not really worthy of persecution. But that is simply mean that our lives have not risen to the place where anyone even notices that we're different. A Bible scholar contemplating this very text in 1958, 64 years ago. Let me tell you what he says about this text. And, and, and um, Christianity at that time in the, in, in the world. So 64 years ago, he said this regarding this text. The ugly truth is that we, we tend to avoid suffering by compromise. Our moral standards are often not noticeably higher than the standards of the world. Our lives do not challenge and rebuke unbelievers by their integrity or purity or love. The world sees in us nothing to hate because we're just like the world. As for the church in general, the church, the Christian church, in many ways, in many places, the world hardly notices it. It makes little impact on society. Its discipline is in many ways lax and its commitment half-hearted. We are, the church is, we are respectable, conventional, inoffensive, and therefore ineffective. As true as this was 64 years ago, apparently, it was before I was born, so I don't remember it. As true as this was then, it is so much more true today. We are respectable, conventional, inoffensive, and therefore ineffective. Most professing Christians, and I'm not speaking of us now, I hope I'm not speaking of anyone here, but most professing Christians today, faced with the same situation this church was faced with, would have said the three little words. And the rationale would have been, surely God doesn't want me or my family, my children, to be unhappy. God wants us to be happy. 
Surely he doesn't want me or my little ones to do without. Just over three little words. I mean, this will take me 30 seconds to sprinkle and say, Jesus is Lord, and to walk down the aisle and get my certificate. Honey, we're good for the next year. This is going to take me 30 seconds and four syllables. And my little ones will be safe. My wife will be safe. People will come to my shop and buy from me. And I can buy groceries. My wife can buy groceries. And they'll treat my children well. 30 seconds, four syllables. And many Christians today, so-called, will just rationalize. Surely God wouldn't want me or my family to suffer. After all, God wants me to be happy. And I won't be happy if I'm happy if I'm thrown in prison. If I'm stricken poverty. An overtly Christ-hating world will attempt to silence faithful churches. We're moving there. We need to prepare for this. We see also in this text that our Savior, our gracious Savior, provides hope to his faithful churches. These believers, he does not give them hope in the sense of it's going to get easier, it's going to get better, but he does offer them words of hope. First, He knows the depths and breadth of their trials. Verse 9. I know. I understand. I know what you're going through. The depth and breadth of it. Verse 8. The one who died and came to life. The one who was persecuted. The one who was brutally crucified. I know what you're going through. I understand it. He identifies with their suffering and he promises victory over it. The persecution and horrific suffering Jesus faced for us enables him to identify and empathize with us in our little suffering. And I want to emphasize that, our little suffering. Whatever this church faced and whatever we will face, whatever our children and grandchildren who who love Christ will face, it's little suffering in comparison to the cross. When the holy, sinless Son of God had poured upon him the sins of the entire human race and became sin for us. That was horrific for him, beyond any physical suffering or any earthly trials anyone could face. And then to have the wrath of the Father poured upon him, hell poured upon him for our sins. He knows our suffering. He empathizes with us in it. Also, he is sovereign over our trials. Here's a word of hope. He's in control of it all. Verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some, note some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you'll have tribulation, be faithful unto death. He's in control of who goes through these trials, these difficulties. Who is thrown into prison? Some of you. He also controls the length of time. Ten days. So that could be speaking literally of ten days, or it could be speaking figuratively of a short time. Bottom line is, whatever trials we face, whatever trials this church faced, Christ controlled who and the length of the trial. Now, by the way, just note the flow here. Um, that you may be tested, and for ten days you have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. It may be that the tribulation ends in death. 
he may be saying to no doubt to some of them the the the, the he's indicating you're going to be in prison and by the way at that time in history in this situation prison was not something that you endured waiting for the waiting for a trial i'll have my day in court you're not going to have a day in court prison was a holding place this was nothing more than a holding cell you're going to die probably that you may be cut loose but usually prison meant you're 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 going to the flames regardless Christ is in control of all of it. He's sovereign. One author says this. I just love this. He says, In the old days, when much of the world was unexplored and unknown, and when many lands were lands of mystery, men drew their maps, and in the unknown places they wrote such things as, Here be dragons, here be burning fiery sands. So here's all the land we know, and then there's water everywhere. We don't know what's past that. So on the map, you've got you know, these various countries, and you've got these various waterways, these oceans, these seas. And then you have on the end, here be dragons, because we have no idea what's, going over there, what's happening over there. And here be burning sands, because we have no idea what's, what's really happening over there. He says the Christian can take the map of life And right across every single part of it, here be Christ. No matter where on the map of your life we're talking, Christ is there. He is sovereign over all of it. Falling off the edge of the map, there aren't dragons there. Christ is there. He's in control of what happens there. He is sovereign over that. Christ will also not waste our trials. Verse 10 he says, that you may be tested. Well, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. Satan's intention, of course, is evil. But Christ's intention is our, our growth, our testing, our purity. Satan is Christ's lapdog, folks. He doesn't do anything without the sovereign permission of Christ. He's not free to do whatever he wants. And Christ has him on a short leash. And so he's, he got, Christ will allow him to, to, to put individuals through trials. He's in control of all of that. And where Satan's goal is our ruination, Christ's goal is our testing, our purification, and our growth. Folks, that means no trial is wasted. Everyone, is, one, everyone has a specific purpose. Our growth. God's glory. And so these believers can rest in that. I'm suffering. My family's suffering. They're knocking on my door. I'm going to be hauled to prison, honey, and I probably won't come back. And in all of that, this is for the glory of God. Somehow this fits in in such a way as to bring glory to God. Christ has also won the victory over Satan's greatest threat. What's the greatest threat for us? Death. He says, the end of verse 10, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you 
the crown of life. The crown of life, I think, is a phrase that simply means the crown that is eternal life. Be faithful unto death, and when that happens, you will gain eternal life. The point is, death has no teeth. There's no threat there. When I was in seminary, I attended a small church not too far from the seminary. We were, I was assistant pastor, and there was a guy in their church who was a little quirky. But he was a good, he was a faithful guy, had some wisdom about him as well. Just a little weird like most of us are. And I remember someone telling him something like, boy, you keep doing that, that's going to kill you. Some phrase like that, that's going to kill you. His response was, don't threaten me with eternal life. And that struck me. That's going to lead to your death. That's got no teeth. Don't threaten me with eternal life. There's no teeth to that. There's no threat there. That's always stuck with me. The guy was kind of a kook, but that's a really helpful phrase. Folks, death doesn't have any teeth. So kill me, but I'm with Christ. We don't fear death. It's the unknown. I mean, the whole the process of death. I shouldn't say it's the... It, after death, we know, we know. But the, the pain, the process, the struggle, we don't look forward. To, but death has no teeth. Christ closes this letter with some words of encouragement. Two commands, actually, that I think are, are, are helpful to us. So here are the commands. As these believers are facing more and worse, and some of them facing death, verse 10 Here's, this is a command. Do not be afraid what you are about to suffer. You're going to face suffering. Don't be afraid. And then look just above verse 11. Be faithful unto death. So here are the two commands, the two encouragements. And they all are, are, in, are in light of the struggle they're facing. In regard to these trials... And your potential death for the cause of Christ, don't be afraid. Now, how can they not be afraid? Come on. Don't, even the wording, don't be afraid what you're going to suffer, what you're about to suffer. And then he describes it, and it might be death. Don't be afraid of that. But that's a command. Actually, the, the Greek is stop being afraid. They were afraid. How many of us would be? Don't be afraid. Instead, be faithful unto death. Folks, faith and fear are opposites. They can't coexist. If you have faith and you're being faithful, if you know Christ, if you understand he is in sovereign control and he loves you and he's merciful and and there is a purpose for all of this, that kind of faith, that kind of sovereign understanding of his sovereignty banishes fear. Psalm 56.3, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. When I'm afraid, and I'm afraid sometimes, I stop and I rest in you. I put my trust in you. When we realize that the all-wise God is in sovereign control, there's really nothing to fear. 
Even when the storms come, even when the executioner's sword is dangling over our necks, even when the flames begin licking at our feet, there's no reason to fear. We can trust him. So here's the encouragement to us. Stop being afraid and rest in him and be faithful until your dying breath. This is a terrible letter and a wonderful letter. It's terrible when we realize and remember what they're facing and we think about the suffering. We think about the bloodshed. We think about the the household with a father and a mother and some children living in abject poverty, waiting for a knock on the door. It's horrible. And it's wonderful. Because they were standing for Christ. The reason they faced that life is because they loved Christ. And they were willing to suffer and willing to die if that was the will of Christ for them. How much we can learn from them. Let me encourage you. As adults, we're not going to live in Smyrna. But our children might. And our grandchildren might. So we really have to prepare them. Thank you, Father, for this letter and the great challenge it is to us. We're so thankful for those who were faithful every day, and many faithful unto death. Help us to purpose in our hearts that we will do the same. They will follow this example. They will hold up the banner of truth. Saying Jesus Christ alone is Lord. And never say or do what, what would give us instant freedom if it violates you. Help us to not be afraid. Help us to be faithful people and to live our lives in faith. Help us to prepare ourselves, our children, and our grandchildren so that if and when those, these terrible trials come, we'll be ready to please you in them. Thank you for Jesus. We love him. We pray these things in his name. Amen.